What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular story podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth episode, and this would be our second this month, or is this our first this month? Uh, I believe we did our last one on New Year's Eve, so this would be the first January one, this would but be our first two weeks. Yeah. But it's been two weeks, so we're trying to keep with our two-week schedule, and this is... I mean, this is a big, big episode. I've been doing these podcasts for a while now. I rarely, if ever, get nervous about doing them. I usually approach them with a sense of confidence after so many podcasts, you feel like you get it down. This one's got me a little little shaken in my boots a little bit. I'm a little um, nervous. I want to do this episode some justice. I want to make sure that we cover this one correctly because the subject matter has super fans, people that are really, really into this world, into this mythology, into this story. And usually when we cover something, let's say we'll take, for example, Harry Potter or Star Wars or Lord of the Rings. I am a super fan in particular of Lord of the Rings and Star Wars. I'd say I'm just a big fan of Harry Potter. You would say you're the super fan of Harry Potter. Sure, yeah. But I feel like uh, uh, I have some expertise. I have some knowledge. I've done a lot of reflecting. Usually I have engaged in the material several times over several years. I mean, I could probably sit down and write the script to A New Hope. That's how many times I've seen it. Yet here we are going into a new fantastical world that I'm dipping my toe into for the first time, and I thought it was astounding. What are we talking about? No more preamble. We are going to be channeling the one power, fighting the dark forces. We are going to be discussing season one of Amazon's new smash hit, The Wheel of time. Yeah, it's very exciting. And I, like you, am a little bit nervous. There are a couple of other properties where I do get a little bit shaky and scared. And even one of those was Dune. Talking about Dune was intimidating for me, even though I have been immersed in that world and that fandom for a little while. I am like, am I even close enough to touch most of the people who are part of that world? And I even feel that way with Star Wars sometimes, as much as I have loved Star Wars for so long. But I think one thing that we have proven 
or that our listeners have proven more like is that we as a community, as the Midnight Myth uh, community writ large, are a very caring and compassionate group of fans of literature, storytelling, movies, and TV. So I am really excited to discuss this television show. We are not people who have read the Wheel of Time series. That is on our to-do list. I've actually got Eye of the World on hold at the library right now. It's only going to be like 30 to 40 weeks before I can get it. But I am really excited to talk about the show. I think we both really enjoyed it. We know it departs heavily from the source material, but that is one of the great joys of having different types of media out there. And the reason that we adapt stories to different media is because different media gives us new opportunities. So we're going to focus our conversation on the show because we don't have a background with the series. We'll pull in just a little bit of research and understanding we got about the world of the Wheel of Time because it informs both the books and the television show, but don't expect us to go very, very deeply into the differences between the book and the TV show because we're just not experts there. And yeah, we haven't read the books. I will say they were never even on my radar. I had obviously heard of and was aware of this fantasy series, was aware that it was very popular, but for whatever reason, never felt the desire to pick up the books. And that's not to say I ever had a desire to not pick up the books. It's just, it was never something I had considered. And then this show came out. And to me, the show scratches a particular itch. And that is the big hole in pop culture left with the ending of Game of Thrones and the desire for big fantasy epics that are told about adults for adults. And I think Wheel of Time really does fit in there nicely in this, I would say, big fantasy genre that streaming content is now really trying to emulate that success of Game of Thrones. And Wheel of Time really did scratch that itch for me. It made me feel like, okay, here's a really big, complicated fantasy world. Things are morally gray. I can really dig my my imagination and my teeth into, and I really enjoyed season one, though I am getting ahead of the conversation here. So before we, uh, usually I'd say roll up our sleeves, but before we hop in this wheel and start circling back and forth and end up where we began, Laurel, do your thing. I'm also not going to roll up my sleeves because it is 16 degrees in Philadelphia this morning. So I'm going to keep my sweater on. But my thing is that we would love to hear from you. So please hit us up on social media. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. We're also on the World Wide Web at MidnightMyth.com. And that's also a place where you can find our Patreon and our merch store and other ways to support and engage with us. The very best thing you can do for the podcast costs you no money and takes only about five minutes of your time. And that's to head over to your favorite listening app, especially Apple Podcasts, and drop us five stars and a rating or a review. Uh, If you love the podcast and you want other people to find it, or you just want to give us that feedback that we deserve and crave, then that is the best thing you can possibly do. And we love, love, love to hear that feedback. So thanks for listening. Let's get on with the show. So I'm not going to attempt to briefest a brief recap an entire season of a very complicated plot in Wheel of Time. Some big level points just to kind of get and jumpstart our brains as we try to wrap our minds around this show. The show is about four main characters living in a sleepy little town in a fantasy world um, called the Two Rivers. Those characters are Rand, Egwene, 
Matt, and Perrin, and the world gets turned upside down when Moraine and her warder land the Aes Sedai, a group of sorceresses who can channel this thing called the One Power and have elemental powers such as ice, water, fire, earth, come to the town, and then shortly thereafter, a group of monsters called Trollocs attack the village, slaughtering the inhabitants. It is there that we find out that the Aes Sedai Moraine is at the town because of a prophecy that the dragon will be reborn. The dragon will be the most powerful of channelers, and the dragon once lived in a fight between good versus evil where the Dark One was trying to smash the Wheel of Time, the Wheel of Time being the essence of the universe itself. Now, these four travelers travel with Moraine to the White Tower in an attempt to uh, get them to where all the Aes Sedai are so they can figure out which one will be the Dragon Reborn. The prophecy does not say if the Dragon Reborn will stop or join the Dark One. So Moraine's mission is to figure out which one is the Dragon Reborn and then make sure that the Dragon fights the Dark One and does not join the Dark One. Along the way, they have tons of great fantasy adventures. They get separated. Uh, Perrin can talk to wolves. They all start discovering their their power. They can all channel this one source. We meet the White Cloaks, which are a group of men designed to hunt down and kill the Aes Sedai, believing them to be witches and believing them to be evil. We learn that when men channel the power, they go insane. And this is due to the fact that the Dark One ended up corrupting the power, locking men away from the ability to channel. Um, the group breaks up. Rand and Egwene are in love. Their love gets tested. One of the villagers um, that is presumed to be dead is called a Wisdom. The Wisdoms have the ability to predict the weather. Shows up, and her name is... I always mispronounce it, so help me. So Nynaeve is Nynaeve. how they pronounce it in the show. Okay. Yeah. So Nynaeve comes up. Thank you very much for helping me there. And Nynaeve turns out that the Wisdoms are just channeling of a sort and that she is also a channeler. Uh, Matt gets corrupted by this evil and ends up leaving the entire group behind. So many amazing things happen along the way. And ultimately, they end up trying to keep the dark forces at bay at this place called the Blythe where we learn that Rand is the channeler. He ends up interacting with one of the Dark One's main followers, defeating him and leaving, knowing that because he can channel the power, he's likely to go insane and asks Moraine to tell the rest of their friends that he is dead. And that is where season one ends. Oh, Naive gets to bring someone back to life. That was pretty cool. I, so many cool things happen. We, the White Cloaks, you know, chop the hands off and burn the Aes Sedai. And then... Perrin summons wolves and the we wolves tear him Ogier, apart. Ogier, who's like the best character. Yeah. The Ogier is amazing. This wise and um, patient and, and slow moving. Ogre. Yeah. Yeah. Who is like, oh yeah, everybody thinks I'm a monster, but I'm actually smarter than all of you. Yeah. Um, I love that you said that you were not going to try and recap it. And then you ended up giving a really eloquent recap of the entire season. And I'm pretty impressed. That is your superpower. That is my superpower. That is your gift, if you got a gift from the Encanto house. If I could be any of the channelers in the show and have any of their powers, I would so like to command the wolves. Like I was Perrin. like, you're going to say talk to wolves. Yeah, that's a good power. It, was re it became very useful, and I love how his eyes glow. 
All right, so the show just came out. Asking the question, does it hold up, really doesn't apply. Um, just give me your sort of high-level general impressions of the show, things that you thought really stood out, uh, things that maybe you didn't think stood out, etc. Yeah, I will say that overall I was really pleasantly surprised by the show. I remember being really excited when it was announced just because I was ready, like you, for something to scratch that Game of Thrones itch. And I was excited that real money is being put behind epic fantasy in television and long-form storytelling. I think that is a net good, even if we end up with some stinkers every once in a while. And this show, once the trailers came out, I was like, this looks kind of bad. And I was just not excited anymore because I just felt really turned off by the trailers. And then we tried it, and I was like, okay, I got to give this a chance. This is actually doing some really interesting stuff. I think overall the production value is there. It is very, very different from a Game of Thrones-style world. We get not a low-magic, high-realism fantasy, but a high-magic fantasy. And so uh, reattuning to that kind of fantasy was really interesting because as much as it lives in the shadow of television's Game of Thrones or uh, cinema's Lord of the Rings, those are both low fan or low magic fantasy. So I had to recalibrate for that. I think that the insight that it gives us into the philosophical ideals that suffuse it were really compelling and overall just got me interested and excited to read the books, which is one of the best things that a television show can do. I know there are serious departures from the book, uh, but I'm still compelled and excited to read them. I had some issues with the show. I thought the finale was particularly weak, uh, and I had some some big problems with that. Even early on, I did not care for, and I know, spoiler alert, this is a departure from the book, but Perrin killing his wife accidentally was really uh, over-the-top and gratuitous for me and just a forced way to build some trauma into this character, and I did not find it organic or helpful to the story. I also didn't truly care for his performance. And there are some of the performances that are a little weak to me. However, I think it's a big swing. I think it's really exciting and it has potential for some really interesting new things in the future. And it's just helping along with other shows like Witcher to usher in you know, everybody trying to tell a fantasy story in the world and fantasy and like nerd culture becoming more mainstream, not just comic book movies, but truly like medieval high fantasy. Let's do it. Let's build imaginary worlds and see what we can create in them. I'm also just going to call out how amazingly diverse this casting is and how imaginative the creators are in saying, no, even though this is a quote unquote medieval world, we don't have to cast all European actors. And I think that is, it's exciting to see. And I hope that more people will take note of this because we all have this misconception that the medieval world was lily white and it was not. There was tons of cross-cultural representation. So I think, I hope that additional shows will take note and, and take this example as well. I think those are all really fair points. You know, in researching for the podcast, I came upon some things that 
when the show feels a little disjointed and things don't come together, there were some serious production woes, which I know is not really our cup of tea in terms of a podcast. If you want to learn about podcasts that delve into how movies get made and all the production woes, highly recommend Verbal Diorama and our good friend M, because it's fascinating to learn how the sausage is made and how complicated these things are. But two things that happened to the show that I think are worth mentioning when we look at the parts of season one that weren't home runs, I think largely the season one is successful, but the pandemic hit while they were filming. And that meant they lost access to places. They lost access to crews. They had to kind of hobble things together in order to complete season one because they had to shut down when the first lockdowns happened and they did not have the ability to tell the full story they wanted as well as the actor who played Matt apparently just quit midway through and decided he did not want to continue playing that character and being on the show, which made them have to completely rewrite his character because they couldn't recast him in the middle of it, which uh, they are going to apparently recast for season two. So I think those two things were legitimate challenges that the show had to overcome. And considering you lost a main character in a group of you know, four potential chosen ones, actually five potential chosen ones, really, but the main story being four potential chosen ones, one of them just deciding to not participate and not be part of the project anymore. It's pretty devastating. Then you add on top of that, oh, by the way, the entire world's in lockdown because the pandemic happened. It's pretty remarkable how good this show is with those challenges. I, I have to give the the production team, the creative team, a ton of credit for piecing it together. And yeah, there are moments that don't really work. The finale being one of them. And apparently that was the um, show. That was the episode that got the worst because of the pandemic. Like they were supposed to have different locations and different things. Instead, you just have four actors standing there channeling. And that's the great battle at the end. And I think that's, that's a shame. Hopefully going into season two, as we, pandemic becomes endemic and we learn how to live with this thing a little better. The show won't have those problems for the next season, but all in all, I got super into this world. I wanted to learn all about it. I wanted to really get invested in this one power and how this world actually operates and ticks. And in that way, even though a very different show from game of Thrones, it was a lot like watching season one of Game of Thrones, where I'm like, okay, what is this Westeros place? What is this Essos place? This world that has had such a huge impact shaping these characters and shaping these characters in different ways. Why is it that the Aes Sedai don't all agree? Why is it that they wear different colors? What is it to be a poor person in this world thrust into this like huge epic story, this huge gigantic wheel that is crushing them when their heart's desires were to just get married and live in the village and do the job that their parents did or become a wisdom and listen to and predict the weather. And I really was um, enamored and enthralled with it. And I wasn't anticipating it. When you have a one-year-old in a pandemic, you don't do a ton. Laurel and I, ours lives are relatively boring. So it was more like, okay, our streaming queue is empty let's just give this wheel of time thing a shake because we don't have anything else to stream right now. And I didn't anticipate 
being here now talking about it in the podcast, the way Laurel and I choose a subject matter for the podcast is one of us, hopefully both of us, but at least one of us has to really love the material and have something they want to say. That's it. If we love it and there's something that we want to say, we're going to podcast about it. And the fact that season one got us to the point where we were going to just mention it in our roundup uh, on our end of year episode, and then we ran out of time and we realized this is a whole episode. We can't just say this stuff willy-nilly. So with that being said, we're excited for season two. I think season one's going to hold up despite its production woes and flaws. And not every single actor is amazing, but I don't think any of them were terrible. Most of the performances I thought yeah. were in in the scale between good and great. Yeah, I was really impressed with Rosamund Pike. I know she's a great actor and I've seen her in so many things be great, but I did not see, I, I was confused at her casting. I just thought they're trying to get an A-lister in here, but she, I thought, was really, really strong as the lead of this ensemble. And the ensemble is filled out with a lot of strong performances. I'll just add one more thing to this kind of high-level overview, which is just that this show is extremely aware of the legacy that it's living in, in the cinematic shadow of Lord of the Rings and the television shadow of uh, Game of Thrones. And it doesn't try to hide from that. There are several moments when it directly references and knows that it's sort of nodding or being cheeky with its references to those influences. I think a character literally says the world is changed and then talks about how legends become myth, whatever. That's the opening monologue from uh, Galadriel at the beginning of The Lord of the Rings. They know that they're dealing with a dragon, a character being referred to as a dragon when we've all been watching the mother of dragons for eight seasons. And I, I think it's smart not to shy away from those and to be like, yep, we're in a continuum of fantasy storytelling. The irony here being that the wheel of time was a significant influence uh, book wise on George R. R. Martin writing game of Thrones or writing a song of ice and fire. So that's all exciting. I think it handles it really well, and I'm excited to see what comes next. Me too. So where would you like to begin in our analysis piece? I would love to talk a little bit about the world itself and some of the cosmological influences on it, because we've already said spoiler alert here, but one of the big twists of this season is that we learn that this medieval world is not in our distant past, but presumably our distant future. And that is kind of a crazy mind break, this sort of Battlestar Galactica twist that uh, the world was once extremely technologically advanced, uh, socially and economically and ecologically advanced, and we flash back thousands of years to a world that was further advanced than the one you and I are living in and that that is the world in which the dragon emerges for the first time. The biggest difference between uh, those worlds being that the one power has been tapped and has been used to help create this advanced society. So presumably what happens when the world breaks, uh, as they talk about in the histories of this world, is that that advancement goes away. The one power is still there, but it takes humanity a very long time to scrape back to something that resembles the high Middle Ages. So this idea that the medieval world is actually our future and that this is what happens in a post-apocalyptic society is super interesting to me and also is 
illustrating that wheel of time that keeps being referenced throughout the story. So I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the mythologies that infuse that and some of the philosophical ideas that infuse that, if that is okay with you. It's totally okay with me. You know, the one thing it brings into my mind and something that might tie into your point is how do you come up with the concept of an age and not meaning how old you are, but when one era comes to an end and a new era begins, how does that get demarcated? How do we know it? When does it happen? And um, so maybe that'll tie in, but you take the lead. It will. And that is a very important question, especially as a historian. And you would naturally ask that question because we only know those things looking backward. We can't necessarily say I am in the high middle ages right now because you don't know what's coming next. And a lot of those demarcations get placed on history afterward in order to easily and conveniently categorize it for people who are trying to learn from the past. So great question. But the idea of time being cyclical is something that recurs across the world in totally different cultures, but really crystallizes, especially in Eastern religions. So we're looking at cosmologies that view time as a series of repeating ages, or a cycle rather than as linear, with a beginning, a middle, and an end. This concept is commonly called the wheel of time, or the wheel of history. And the Sanskrit word that is often used uh, that means this same thing is Kala Chakra. Kala meaning time, Chakra meaning wheel. The Kala Chakra is central to a number of Indian religions like Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, and Jainism. And you'll also see similar cosmologies in some indigenous cultures of the Americas, like the Hopi. In Hindu cosmology, time is eternal and it repeats in a cycle of what are typically four ages. And those four ages are then broken down into various component cycles. It's very complicated, so I'll keep it high level for now. But the general events of the ages repeat with variations, sort of self-similar, until the close of an age and the dawn of a next one. So for scale, so you understand what these ages look like, a yuga cycle or a great age lasts 4,320,000 years. And there are several different uh, components that make up a yuga cycle. Buddhism and Jainism are going to run with this concept, and both traditions will visually represent the cyclical nature of time as a rotating wheel with no beginning and no end. Now, in addition to time re being represented as a wheel, wheels are a common and powerful symbol in lots of Eastern religions. So you think of samsara, the cycle of life, death, and reincarnation. That's often referred to as a wheel, the wheel of samsara. There's also the dharma chakra or the wheel of the dharma and a title for the ideal ruler of the Indian subcontinent, which was sometimes applied to the Buddha Gautama, is chakravarti, which means loosely, the one who, whose wheels are turning, or the wheel-turning king, or he whose chariot rolls with its wheels. But this isn't, and I think this is important, this isn't just an Eastern idea. And Robert Jordan, who wrote The Wheel of Time, has, has said in interviews and in intros to the books, I'm basing this on Hinduism and the Hindu concept of the Wheel of Time. But it isn't just an Eastern idea, cyclical time. There's also, very importantly, the notion of eternal return, also known as eternal recurrence, which is a key concept in antique Stoicism in the 3rd century BCE. But some people think it's even earlier than that as far as classical antiquity. 
A lot of people think that it originates in the teachings of Pythagoras centuries earlier. And then it becomes even more popular in the 19th century writings of a little friend of the pod named Friedrich Nietzsche. So I think it's such an interesting fact that this idea of time not being linear but recurring and the events of time recurring either exactly or with slight variations is, is super central to the show, the books, The Wheel of Time, but also just an interesting thing to meditate on. And I just wanted to bring this in because we have had a lot of fun with beautiful romantic quotes of Friedrich Nietzsche before. As like complicated an individual as he was, there is kind of no one who can put such eloquence uh, into ideas as Friedrich Nietzsche. I just wanted to read a quote of his on eternal return, if you'll permit me. Oh, please. Okay. Please quote Friedrich Nietzsche. Okay, Nietzsche says, quote, what if some day or night a demon were to steal after you into your loneliest loneliness and say to you, this life, as you now live it and have lived it, you will have to live once more and innumerable times more, and there will be nothing new in it, but every pain and every joy and every thought and sigh and everything unutterably small or great in your life will have to return to you, all in the same succession and sequence. Would you not throw yourself down and gnash your teeth and curse the demon who spoke thus? Or have you once experienced a tremendous moment when you would have answered him, you are a god and never have I heard anything more divine, end quote. Woo, chill bumps. What was that from Thus Spoke the Zarathustras? I believe so, yes, uh, because Eternal Return is, is central to, to Zarathustra, uh, but it's in some of his other writings as well, so I don't know exactly which text that's from, but probably. Uh, I wanted to bring that in just because it is uh, the emotional heart of the idea of time being cyclical, because as just an idea... That's great. That's a really cool way to build your world. But this is also a story about characters. This is also a story about relationships, particularly the central relationship between Rand and Egwene. But we see it uh, mimicked in so many character constellations in the story. The idea that you might have to live this life again and make the same choices over and over again would be an interesting proposition to Rand, right? Or an interesting proposition to Egwene. I just wanted to bring in all those little complications of this and meditate on that. Yeah. A few things I'd like to add and compliment to that point in Norse myth at the death of the gods at the hands of Loki, the Ragnarok, it ends with the gods being reborn and the universe being reborn. And in this way, there is a cyclical nature to also how the ancient Norse, at least from the myths that survived, viewed the end of all times. And for them, the end of the world was an icy cold affair that would ultimately reborn, we, the gods would be reborn and the cycle would repeat again and again and again. And if you think about the concept that ancient people, ancient philosophers understood is that, you know, there is a certain energy to things that are alive. And should the universe have always been and always will be, that energy would naturally start to recycle. This is the meditations that led to the Hindus' ideas of reincarnation. Eventually, things would be reborn because as there is death, there is new life. Why would a person not go through that same cycle that we can see the seasons going through? Now, cosmologically speaking, physicists, current physicists, 
don't think that's true, that the universe always was and always will be. They think it had a definitive starting point. If that is the case, it does kind of throw those philosophical ideas at least into ontological confusion. It's fundamental truthness might be suspect with what we now believe to be the origins of the universe. So if the universe is always starts and is always expanding, then the energy would always keep expanding. And if it didn't always exist, it came from somewhere that would mean that life did have a starting point. It wasn't always just constantly being reborn. So that does make these ideas a little more philosophically complicated but as we apply the idea of a cyclical nature, of the idea of time as a reoccurrence, as a wheel, and we apply that to the characters, there is an interesting meditation as we look at from everyone from the Aes Sedai to the villagers of the two rivers. And that is, are any of these characters free independent agents or are they trapped in a wheel where they don't have any choice? And I think the show doesn't fully answer that in season one, but it alludes to the fact that they probably don't. I think there's more evidence in the show that everybody is trapped here in this wheel rather than being a guiding spoke on it, kind of pushing it forward. So we see characters do make some semblance of choices. The character Matt decides to not go into the portal to go to the where the Blythe is and decides that he's not going to join them. You do see, um, you know, the character Egwene making the decision to break up with Rand in the beginning so that she can become a wisdom and learn the ways of predicting weather. So in this vein, it's like, okay, yeah, these characters make a ton of choices. They're obviously free and independent actors. But then we find out that there's a prophecy. This prophecy has these huge elemental forces, both for good and for evil, pushing these characters into this narrative, dragging some of them, kicking and screaming. And at many times, the four characters are like, should we trust the Aes Sedai? Should we follow Moraine? It, does she have our best interest? And of them, they really decide no. They don't think she has their best interest, yet they continue to follow. That would allude to me, these characters aren't really choosing for themselves. Choices are being made for them. So much so that if a man, by no accident other than their innate power, touches the one power, they go mad. They go completely insane. Another piece of evidence suggesting that, well, they're not choosing to go insane. They didn't choose to be able to channel the power. And yet here they are. And, and, and here they are going mad. And one of the characters who believes himself to be the Dragon Reborn, the most powerful channeler any of them have ever seen, gets cut off from the power and becomes a shell of himself. We also have characters like the White Cloaks, they're designed to check the authority and the power of the Aes Sedai in episode two when they cross the river and they send the boat back and the ferryman's like, I'm going back for my son. And what does he say? The white cloaks are right. Screams it at Moraine as he jumps into this river. And what does she do? She drowns him. She kills him so that that boat can't reach the, the, 
um, God, what are they called again? The monster army. Trollocs. Yeah. The Trollocs. Yeah, I keep wanting to say orcs. And yeah, they're not orcs. <laughs> they're Very Trollocs. specifically not orcs. Yeah, they're like a combination of orc and minotaur. And, yeah, yeah, a little bit, like, yeah. Like the really cool monsters, and there's an army of them under the command of the Dark One. And if if this is where the show is headed, that these characters are not free, in fact, no one's free, that everyone is trapped in the wheel would the Dark One not have a good argument to smash it and destroy it? If, if if it is literally ending everyone's ability to be free, we are all slaves to the Wheel of Time. Why not try to smash it? Maybe the Dark One has a point. Yeah, so uh, this is exactly what I was going to say as you were talking about the Wheel being maybe a prison that keeps people from making meaningful and significant choices that would actually change the course of events. Uh, that creates a pretty compelling argument for the Dark One's existence and for the people who follow him, uh, specifically like Ishamayel, who is the name of the character that Rand goes head to head with at the end. And one of the things that I'm, I think is weakest about the finale is that that argument isn't articulated well enough throughout the series for us to believe that Rand is, is, tempted by the dark one at all like i think there should have been a stronger argument made for why rand might go uh, the other direction but i also just wanted to share the complication of the fact that the prophecy says that the dragon reborn will either fight the dark one or join him so there is meaningful choice to be made and i think the key element of this cosmology here is let's look at the you know, let's look at the two possibilities of eternal recurrence or a Kala Chakra. It's either exact events being repeated every single time exactly the same way or in a self-similar fashion. So in the Hindu cosmology, it's not the exact events every time. It is repeated with variations. The general events will repeat. Dragons will be reborn. The same conflicts will be fought. The same fights will be uh, de decisive of how the future goes, but those fights might go a different way because there presumably is an element of choice. So I think that is something that season two needs to step up and address and also needs to make that case for why the Dark One exists. So great. I just wanted to praise you for bringing that up. To me, it's, it's as if so I can choose, you know, what color socks I'm going to wear today. In, in this world, in the world of Wheel of Time, I can choose if I'm going to have eggs for breakfast or pancakes. But when it comes to the big events, the things that are really going to be moving this world in one direction or another, the show seems to suggest that no one really does have a choice. You know, we see Moraine choose to be exiled so that she can continue the quest as um, she ends up defying the will of the council. So there is some some element of choice, and the prophecy seems to suggest that the dragon can choose, but there is another way to interpret that. The prophecy just doesn't know, that the choice is already made, but it isn't clear which way it will go. So there is a suggestion, uh, two interpretations of that, being that, yes, the dragon will choose to either join the Dark One or destroy the Dark One, but on the other hand, it could be the prophecy is just not clear. Like in, you've read the Oracle and you're not 100% certain of the interpretation. That is actually a really good point because we know that the preservation of history is not exact and is not perfect. The world broke. We don't have access to the same 
advanced technology anymore. And so we don't have data banks and computers that have preserved history. And even if we did, we know that there are forces that could distort the telling of true history. No one can hand down the object or the objective exact events as they happened. But now we're in a medieval world that can only access history through song uh, in the way that the, the folks from the two rivers are singing about their home and have no idea what the actual history is. Moiraine has just a little bit more insight. So the prophecy that they've been handed could have been distorted by generations as they are trying to fulfill a goal and they're trying to meet an agenda. So it's also interested in interrogating how we receive our history and how factual, how objective that actually is and how much we can rely on it. Which leads me into the point about ages that I'd like to elaborate a little bit mm -hmm. on. And it is a artifact of fantasy that Tolkien did and others have emulated. I don't know if Tolkien, Tolkien invented this in fantasy or not, but the idea of one age ending and a new one beginning. And I want to talk a little bit about the history of how, at least in Western historical discourse, this occurred and whether or not this is an accurate way to look at history or not. And it does involve the Middle Ages. Great. And you mentioned someone saying, oh, no one says they're in the high Middle Ages. Aha, but they kind of did. Did they? Okay. Well, in the, so there's the, we, the Middle Ages are happening, that period we now call the Middle Age, which calls into question the word age is in there. And previous to that, the general thinking was that human history would have, in Western Christian thought, had a few main chunks to them and that St. Augustine outlined those, and they were centered around biblical events and the coming of Jesus. And now that there was the coming of Jesus, it was all about preparation for Jesus's return and the ultimate apocalypse. And that was it. All human history would lead to that. Linear and it would time. lead to the end. And it would be a linear time, and it would have a set beginning, middle, and end, and Jesus is the middle. And now everyone's job is to preserve the word of Jesus and purify themselves through prayer in preparation for the next step, which is Jesus's return, the destruction of the devil and the ascent of humans into heaven and going back to God, essentially. Well, the, there were the Italian humanists during the, what we now call the late middle ages, which is the period of 1300 through 1500. And they started challenging some of these set assumptions. And this is a period that some call the Italian Renaissance and demarcate it as the end of the Middle Ages. Well, it was the Italian humanists themselves re-looking history, re-reading the classics, re-engaging with St. Augustine, and said, no, there was a period of time called the classical antiquity. It ended when Rome fell, and now we are living in a middle period, and through the Italian humanists, the Renaissance would occur, and the new period would begin and thought of Western human history as three distinct ages. The age of the, the great age, the age where humankind was at its best, which was classical antiquity. The middle ages, it was they themselves who called it the dark ages, where humanity lost touch with its classical past and hence was uh, degraded, especially in Western civilization. And they themselves said, the new age has begun. And that new age is this age of the Italian humanists where we will revive the classical past 
and introduce Christianity into it, making the classical past reborn like the dragon reborn with a Christian cosmology and hence making it perfect. They were distinguishing themselves from the ages that they saw past and thought of it as in three chunks. We now, looking back, say that that was the birthplace of what we call modernity, and that modernity became, began then, and the Middle Ages ended. And then we now have the Industrial Age, and now we have the Information Age. And because of this discourse in the Italian humanists trying to separate themselves from the other people in, uh, in particular, the other people in the now called Middle Ages, they have this discourse of these distinct ages. Do you know who was well aware of this? A little scholar named J.R.R. Tolkien and was well aware of this discourse and embedded that into his mythology that there was a third age dawning at the time of Lord of the Rings, very much like the Italian humanists were saying there's a third age dawning. So because of Tolkien's love of the Middle Ages and Middle Age language and studying this period of time, he introduces this. I, I'm not saying for a fact this is a direct line, but I'm inferring based upon what I know of Tolkien and what I know of the Italian humanists that there is definitely a connection there. And that is something that fantasy writers use to great effect when building their histories. One of the hallmark of a really good quote-unquote high fantasy, and I've got problems with that term, but it's useful here, but a high fantasy because it implies that there's lower forms of fantasy, and I think that's just ridiculous. Tell the story you want to tell. One is not higher or lower. But anyway, topic for another podcast. When you're doing a fantasy in a Tolkien way where it is presumably modeled off of medieval structures where there's kings and queens and court magicians and knights and maybe there's magic, etc. When you're doing a fantasy world like that, what Tolkien proved is it benefits to having a deep lore, to give a reason to why are the characters acting the way that they're acting, what structures had happened in the past that can drive the narrative. Robert Jordan does this to great effect in Wheel of Time, and so does season one. Well, there was a great conflict there was a really powerful person. That powerful person stopped the evil from growing, but that evil lingers on today and still has an effect so men cannot channel the one power without going insane, hence limiting the ability to fight the Dark One when he inevitably returns. And I think that is something that's really cool. But here's the thing. Is it correct to think about our history in terms of ages? I'd like to give a piece of evidence to suggest that it is a fiction, that it is an intellectual artifact that we create so that we can feel good about ourselves and different from those in the past. And the piece of evidence that I want to use to suggest that thinking of history in terms of ages is probably not correct is ancient Egypt. If you ask an ancient Egyptian scholar, when does ancient Egypt end, they will say, Typically, the death of Cleopatra and the full annexation of Egypt into the Roman Empire, where now Roman governors would govern Egypt and Egypt would no longer govern herself. However, that seems like an odd distinction, because since the time of the Persian Empire, the Egyptians really weren't governing themselves. First, the Persians conquered Egypt, 
And Alexander the Great conquered Egypt, and he gave it to one of his top commanders, a man with the last name of Ptolemy. And the dynasty that which gave Cleopatra, the queen of Egypt, was the Ptolemy dynasty. So this is a Macedonian, or some would say the Macedonians would say Greek. That's also debatable. So this is a Macedonian dynasty. So Egypt really wasn't governing herself. It was the Macedonian dynasty. However, even in the era of Cleopatra, Rome was pulling the strings. Rome was definitely governing. It was Caesar himself who placed Cleopatra as the throne so that he could control Egypt. And it was a super important thing because Egypt, because it's an agrarian cycle, because the way it grows food is not dependent on rain, it's dependent on the Nile flooding, it always had bread. So it was literally the place where the ancient world could get food. So Caesar was absolutely controlling Cleopatra. And then afterwards, so was Mark Anthony and Augustus. So it wasn't governing itself. So why does the death of Cleopatra mark the end? Furthermore, if there were a quote-unquote ancient Egyptian, they wouldn't say we're no longer ancient Egyptians. They wouldn't even use the term ancient Egyptian. They would say Egyptian. They kept on worshiping the same gods. They kept the same monetary system. They kept the same traditions. Even the Roman governors would get mummified in an Egyptian style when they died. You can go into the Metropolitan Museum of Art and see sarcophaguses with a like white Western face painted on it because it was a Roman that was, you know, essentially a Roman governor that was mummified in there. So in many ways, ancient Egypt seems to continue on despite the death of Cleopatra, you know, and then to me, it would make more sense to say it ends when the ancient Egyptian religion ends, which is when Rome really um, forces conversions away from paganism into Catholicism, Roman Catholicism. And then when the Muslim empires you know, go in there, they stamp out Christianity and it's firmly Islamic. But yet the people, the average Egyptian, still shares kinship with the pharaohs of old. Egypt still exists and still thrives. You can still see the pyramids. They haven't disappeared. So because of this, I think it is incorrect potentially and almost artificially say this is where something ends and another begins. An idea I think the Wheel of Time plays with very well in the idea that it's really, even though the technology might be different, even though things are lost, even though the land has changed, fundamentally the forces that govern this world, the conflict between the Aes Sedai and the Dark One is still the main mover of events. I would argue that yeah, they don't have flying cars, but still the show is suggesting that the same age, the same period continues on. Undoubtedly, over time, things change. And there does get to a point where you recognize that things have changed. But this, the, the idea of ages, it promotes the idea that this is a clear cut, one thing stops and another begins. And in reality, they blend, they overlap. It takes time. It took centuries for Latin to die out and the Romance languages to be born. It takes a long time for events to happen. The Industrial Revolution was not a light switch that turned on. Quite the opposite. It was started in London and it spread outwards. Now, we are seeing currently in the Age of Information 
change happening much more rapidly. It has sped up because of technology, but one era doesn't just simply end and the other begins. And I think the show really recognizes that though they're very different from the Chandlers who fought the Dark Ones thousands of years ago, that same force, that same power is what is compelling our characters. Hence, it's not fundamentally all that different. Yeah, and we especially can't recognize the beginning of something new and the end of something old as it's happening. We can maybe put those constraints on later as we are trying to categorize it for ourselves for educational purposes, but especially in the thick of it, we cannot know. And I do think that ambiguity is interesting to play with, and I think the show is trying to deal in that ambiguity, especially through the character of Moiraine, as she is trying to interpret prophecies that have been handed down to her, and they're vague, and people are messy. So she is looking at four to five potential dragons reborn, trying to filter them and their particular idiosyncrasies and their different ways of touching the source, trying to filter that through poetry and song that's been handed down to her over generations. And I think that's great and really interesting. Yeah. One other thing I'd like to pivot to, I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about the three oaths. Would that be cool? Absolutely. This I found to be one of the more intriguing moments of the show. And just to recap what that means is, you know, when the adventuring party is not sure if they can follow Moraine, the Aes Sedai, into the wild and has their best interest, she tells them that there are these three oaths by which all Aes Sedai are bound. And they are not bound simply because they said the oaths. They are literally bound. If they break these oaths, they will die. They have to follow them. That is one to speak no word that is not true, two, to make no weapon with which one man may kill another, and three, never to use the one power as a weapon except against dark fiends or shadow spawn or in the last extreme defense of her life, the life of her warder or another Aes Sedai. Those are the three rules that they are bound to. And I found something really interesting. So when you have moral principles that are unbreakable, you are dealing with what are called deontological moral systems. These are rules-based systems. The Ten Commandments is a deontological rule-based system. You have these commandments and you cannot break them no matter what. The uh, Hippocratic Oath is a deontological moral system. That is the oath that doctors take when they become doctors. And here we are, the Aes Sedai, with their moral system that cannot be broken. Yet we see something very interesting with the Aes Sedai. We see political factions. We see infighting among those factions. There's a group of Aes Sedai who wear red, who just find men who channel the power and hunt them down, presumably to bring them to justice, and if they have to, to kill them. We see Moraine using her powers to drown a man who was just simply trying to sell to save his son even though that might potentially endanger them. And it really made me think, what is the show saying about this type of rule-based morality? And I think the show is saying it doesn't work. You cannot actually create perfect rules. So why is it? Well, to speak no word that is not true, we see Moraine lie 
lie by omitting certain facts. This happens when the white cloaks interrogate her. She hides and distorts and the way she says things make it technically not an overt lie, but it is a omission and a covert and an equiv- lie. Equivocation. Yeah, absolutely. And she uses and structures her words so that she can actually make it seem like something is not true. And in this instance, that seeming is seeming that she is not an Aes Sedai and her friends aren't actually potential channelers. And she does so to great effect. And at several times, Moraine needs to choose her words in a way which will get the outcome she wants, which involve omissions and half-truths and, and distortions. So in other words, rule number one doesn't apply. To make no weapon with which one man may kill another. We don't see them making any weapons, so that seems okay. But we certainly see them using the power to hurt people. And then three, to never use the one power as a weapon. And this is where I think the problem resides. What the show is suggesting is that if you have these rule-based moral systems, what you then have is an institution organized around these rules. And then you have them, as like a lawyer would, interrogate the wording and find ways to do what they need to do within the rules while technically not breaking them, but defying the spirit of them. This is something that we see in our own time. We see people using the law and using it in a technical way, finding different ways to interpret the words, to manipulate the spirit of them. A great example of that is the Second Amendment in America. The Second Amendment, which says, you shall have the right to bear arms. And that is how it's interpreted. But there's a really important clause at the end of that, which is you have the right to bear arms to form a militia. You don't actually have just a blanket right to bear arms. But because of the way people interpret it and the way that it is used, it is now used to justify a private citizen having their own stockpile of munitions and weapons, which does great harm to our society. And I think what the show is suggesting that the Aes Sedai do the same thing, that they approach these three rules, these three oaths, like lawyers, as opposed to in the spirit by which they are. And because of that, pardon me, are able to work around the three rules, hence rendering the rule-based moral system completely and totally inept, and at some points, maybe even a little absurd. And where the wiggle room comes in, the ultimate flaw Never use the one power as a weapon, except. Yeah. That one word means that there are ways that you can get around. There are conditions, there are clauses by which you can use the one power as a weapon. Well, then it comes, once you have that in there, then it's like, okay, the dark friends or the shadows spawn. Who defines what those are? The Aes Sedai define who those are. Since the Aes Sedai can define that exception, they are able to use this as a weapon. Or in the last extreme defense of her life, what was drowning the ferryman, the last extreme in defense of her life? And she makes a logical proof that says, you know, if, if he had gotten over there, then the Trollocs would have been able to cross the river and then they would have killed us. So she makes the argument, but is that the last extreme defense of her life? It's very laurely. Yeah. She makes a laurel, 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 you're laurel. She makes an argument like a lawyer would. And because of that, she finds ways to undo how bound the spirit of that law would say, 
all right, if this guy's going to do this, we just have to run because that would be an option other than killing him, you know, and she kills him. So to me, because of the word except is built into that, because there's a clause or condition on the third one, it renders the three O's inert. It renders them absurd. And because of that, I think the show is suggesting, maybe even outright saying, rule-based moral systems don't work in the real world. In the real world, you got to throw out the rules and you have to do what you have to do. In other words, there is no moral system or code by which people should live in. And when we get to the White Tower, when we get to the Fortress of the Aes Sedai, when we see their political machinations, which was probably my favorite part of all of season one, was getting into the White Tower, learning the politics. I, I just gobble that stuff up. Very games of Game of Thrones. We realize that there are factions vying for authority. They're arguing for different interpretations, different ways that they should use the power. There's a monarch who uh, hides her intentions, hides her romance and her love so that she can wield political power. And here we see a cynical display of authority and not cynical in the respect that, oh, I don't think they're telling the story genuinely. Cynical in the Machiavellian sense, deep-rooted cynicism about the Aes Sedai, and it pervades, and, it per and that is the reason we have white cloaks, because the Aes Sedai have these oaths, and because of that word accept and their ability to work around them, and because that they care about their own power and maintaining their own power, there are a faction of women-hating men that are going out there with a burn-the-witch mentality. And which is not to say that they deserve that because they don't. I'm not saying the Aes Sedai should be hunted down and killed by the White Cloaks. They're definitely villains. But the reason that that happens is the failure of deontological moral systems in the show and perchance the failure for anyone who wants to exercise power and authority to really have a rule-based moral system. I think you're exactly right. I think the reason for the existence of the three O's is to critique deontological moral systems and rule-based systems. And I'll draw a parallel to another literary work uh, in the works of Isaac Asimov, who also has a set of three laws for robotics that he's built into his stories about robots. And his work also this year was, or last year, was adapted foundation was created into a, an Apple TV plus show. So uh, these, these genre fictions are all kind of being picked up in these really influential worlds, but his three laws of robotics. And this is in a perfect world where human beings are the creator God of the robots. His, his three laws are a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction, allow a human being to come to harm. Second law a robot must obey the orders given it by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. And the third law is a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. Great. Seems like those are devoid of loopholes, right? But the whole basis of robot fiction tends to be, even if, it's, if it incorporates these three laws, that robots find a way to rise up against humans anyway. <laughs> And, and take over the world. Like the idea of putting these laws in there, even in a perfect or quote unquote perfect system where we have control over the outcome uh, says that rules for the sake of rules do not work. They do not apply. They, uh, they foment corruption. In fact, in fact, that it is too messy. The world is too complicated. 
in order for them to actually follow these in particular when you are trying to run an institution that governs large swaths of people, eventually you've got to use your power for brute force. Eventually you have to make a decision between one life and five. And because of that, these rule-based systems break down. I love you bringing up the three laws of robotics. There's a great movie about the three laws called iRobot. And that's based on an Asimov story. Starring Will Smith, where the three laws fundamentally lead to the robot rebellion. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so it's like, didn't really work there. And, you know, it's a tough pill to swallow because I am a huge, huge fan of Immanuel Kant. And I'm a huge fan of the categorical imperative which is and a Captain America the deontological and, yeah. moral system. Like I am a big fan of saying there are things that are right and wrong and you stick by the right. And no matter what you don't waver whatsoever. So I'm actually a fan of that philosophically, but what wheel of time and why I, one of the reasons I enjoyed season one is it just smashed that and said, yeah, you've got these three laws, except you don't. And we can, you got these three oaths, part of me, except you don't. And you can actually, you can actually be power hunky, Machiavellian, lie, manipulate, cheat, kill, steal, do what you got to do to fight the dark one. And I think there's a huge difference between the three O's or the three laws of robotics and Kant's categorical imperative. I mean, significantly, Kant is also saying that we can't use human beings as means. We have to use them as ends in themselves. He, he's an He's called an ethical idealist often. And these stories are interrogating human nature and are deeply cynical about human nature and say that we will take those rules and we will find ways to bend them to our own agenda. But what Kant uh, is inferring is that we have some deeper goodness and some connection to a a real principle of good and what is right and wrong that infuses rules and laws that we make. And what this show is proving through the distortion of the three oaths is that rules for the sake of rules, uh, they are not effective. A deep connection to the principle of good has to be, uh, has to be intact in order to apply these laws evenly. Yeah. One other thing I'd like to touch um, before we wrap up here. Yeah. We talked at length at the beginning of our analysis piece about the uh, Indic cosmology mm-hmm. and the cycle and the wheel there is an interesting blend of both Eastern and Western ideals because that there is a creator of the wheel of time and a dark one locked in struggle over the fate of the wheel that really reminisces of Christian cosmology with a God and a devil and that there are two polar forces. And I just really enjoy, and I don't think we don't have time to dig too deep into this, how this show is able to blend a fantasy genre, which is about good versus evil, which is very Western to its core and introduce Eastern ideas into it. And that is just something that I think it balances really well and think is really cool and make me, makes me very excited for new episodes. I agree. So yeah, we've got a conflict between uh, the influence of a cosmology that tends to be non-dualistic with a cosmology that is deeply dualistic, good versus evil. And what I think is really interesting in the world building and the histories and the mythologies of the world of the Wheel of Time is that the creator in creating the Wheel of Time and the universe had to seal off the Dark One from it because the existence of the Dark One and a dualistic nature negates the existence of 
a non-dualistic wheel of time. And so the dark one breaking through into the wheel breaks the wheel, breaks the world. Uh, so it is it is actually saying these are really very much in conflict. The worldviews that, that exist side by side in the in, in the world building of the wheel of time, these don't work together very well. And so they break each other. And yet that helps to usher in another turn of the wheel. Love it. Anything else? That's it for me. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Until next time, be kind.